land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome back to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment where we take a plain English look at the big three property news stories of the week. I'm joined by the king of content this week, Mr. Owen Rask. How are we today, sir? Well, Pete, when I thought that you might introduce me as the king of content, I thought, what (laughs) could I come back with? And I thought maybe the king of Twitter, the king of blogging, or the king of just about anything else and uh, i gotta admit i'm doing pretty well mate always a pleasure to chat i uh, understand you had a bit of a holiday yeah we're recording this day after anzac day so out on the water yesterday by the looks of things yeah yeah every opportunity basically i get on a weekend i, I do a bit of fishing and it's just a one of those things that i can do as you no doubt know when you've got twitter and you've got content and you've got a business it's just a wonderful way to get out in nature and switch off so for me that's my thing and yeah i went out yesterday on anzac day it's beautiful 24 degrees down in the wilson's prom which for those of you that haven't been there uh, in victoria it's kind of i don't know it's kind of like the jurassic park of victoria it's a bit like there's exposed rocks there's animals you'll never see anywhere and Mate, it was lovely. How about yourself? What have you been up to? Looks like you've uh, caught the sun a bit, but we can always put a, an Instagram <laughs> filter over the uh, the content promos. Uh, well, I've uh, well, I had very quiet days uh, for Anzac Day. My stuff was closed. I've actually been in the dentist this morning, so apologies if I'm dribbling on the microphone at all. Um, yeah, got my got to have my wisdom teeth out actually. So uh, if I've got a bit of a brain fog today, uh, it's the anaesthetic. Uh, I'm sure that somebody smarter than me would come up with a wisdom tooth analogy and investing about you know taking out your problem child investments before they become a problem or something. But uh, yeah, with all the anaesthetic, I think somebody else will have to do the uh, <laughs> do the analogies. I like it, mate. But um, I know how expensive those things can be. Do you get that covered on private healthcare, or is that I, I can't up I, to a level, yeah. But then when, once you start having fillings and wisdom tooth out, um, yeah. And to be honest, it, the biggest pain these days is to the hip pocket rather than the the tooth. It's the uh, mm. <laughs> the the expense all adds up. So look, so this is our um, two cents segment. So like every Sunday morning at seven a.m., you'll find our two cents podcast episode waiting for you in your podcast player. And these they're a bit of fun. So each week we'll cover anything you want to hear about, but also the main news stories we've seen in the media. So I thought this week, Owen, um, much as I'd like to chat about Wilson's prom all day and seeing the fairy penguins down in Victoria, um, the big three property news stories of the week. So firstly, uh, the proposed reform of the Reserve Bank of Australia, what that might mean for monetary policy and interest rates and so on. We actually got some inflation figures out this morning, so we'll talk about that first. Uh, secondly, in the property industry, lots of insolvencies in the construction sector. Um, big acceleration in building and developing, developing firms going bust of late. Uh, so we'll take a look at what all, that all means uh, for the industry and for us as individuals and um, you as people who participate in the housing market. And thirdly, 
the lending market. So we've heard a bit about mortgage prisoners and people being trapped and unable to refinance and getting clobbered with higher mortgage rates. So we'll take firstly a look at what's happening. And then secondly, we'll take a bit of a look at what you can do practically uh, to take some steps to improve uh, matters if that's you. So um, does that sound okay, Owen? There's a bit of a rundown. Yeah, sounds great. Really great topics. So, well, let's rip into it before uh, the anesthetic starts uh, <laughs> wearing off when I start howling in pain. So, so the um, speaking of uh, uh, painful um, extraction, so this week uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia um, has been in the spotlight. A lot of people have been very critical of the Reserve Bank. Um, inflation, of course, just like in many other parts of the world, has been well above target. And maybe this is a bit of a smokescreen uh, taking some attention away from the government and the federal budget, which is uh, coming up in the next week or so. Uh, but a review of the Reserve Bank uh, practices and the Reserve Bank structure. And um, there's been plenty of media here in terms of the proposed recommendations. So did you get a chance to have a, a read of any of those pieces, Owen? Yeah. So when I heard that the government was taking a look at the RBA, uh, immediately alarm bells sound in my head because traditionally the way finance has been set up with the central bank that makes decision on um, interest rates and um, financial stability is that that is separate from the government of the day and for good reason because you don't have governments coming in and spending a lot and trying to artificially control interest rates. And so when this was brought up, I um, it raised a few eyebrows and I must admit, Pete, when the... I guess the original, like the, the genesis for this was uh, quite a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, when um, the Fairfax Media Press, so that would be like the City Morning Herald and uh, The Age in Melbourne and a few others, uh, basically highlighted a piece that suggested that Australia needs to get in line with other countries, um, so a few countries around the world, and basically take that control of setting interest rates out of the RBA's hands and give them... A, you know, some other roles and responsibilities. Um, but what was I, what I find ironic about this whole situation, Pete, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, is that the original kind of expose by Fairfax was alleging that the government, or the, sorry, not the government, the RBA didn't drop interest rates far enough. So many people will remember that the interest rates were sitting around that 1% mark when all of the rest of the world seemed to be going into negative or zero interest rates. And the original, the original concern was that interest rates are too high and they should have dropped them. And then during COVID, they obviously did drop them and now they've risen them significantly. So now there's even more firepower to blame the RBA if you're a government. So I'm curious what you thought about this whole saga, maybe from beginning to end, Pete, and maybe pros and cons. Yes. So, yeah, you're right. There is always a political element to this. And I think it's, like, it's very easy for uh, people to take a Harry Hindsight viewpoint and blame the RBA for everything that goes wrong. But of course, we've been through an unprecedented uh, few years in many respects. Um, I think just to rewind the clock. So the Reserve Bank's mandate as it stands. Uh, so the bank has a duty to contribute to the stability of the currency, firstly. Uh, secondly, uh, to promote full employment. And thirdly, um, to pursue the economic prosperity and welfare of the Australian people. And to achieve those objectives, there's an inflation target. Um, so we aim to see consumer price inflation in the economy at around 2 to 3% on average over the medium term. So I think where things have gone a bit um, off course in recent years. So you mentioned, yes, 2016 to 2019, the economy was running very slow. We actually had inflation under target for a long period of time, um, several years, in fact. And um, you could almost feel the RBA crying out for the government to uh, stimulate the economy, maybe with some fiscal stimulus, uh, maybe just by loosening the budget purse strings a little bit. Um, so that, that was a big debate at the time. And as Fairfax um, and I think Andrew Lee and Isaac Gross and a number of others have pointed out, that actually cost people jobs. We could have had maybe 270,000 people more in employment at the time, but we didn't because the Reserve Bank was not rushing to get inflation back to target. Instead, they were saying, well, look, there's some financial stability risks here. We don't want to put interest rates too low 
because that will encourage speculation in the housing market in particular. So this is uh, led on to the COVID period where, of course, inflation went from under target to way over target, just like in many other parts of the world. And now everybody's saying, well, the Reserve Bank should have lifted interest rates sooner. Um, and as things stand, the RBA doesn't expect inflation to get back down to target until 2025. So this has given a rise to a big debate about well, how soon does inflation need to get back down to 2 to 3%? Um, do we need to push up unemployment to do so? Or can the RBA be patient like it was being before COVID and just allow inflation to come down gradually? So does that make sense? Mm, it does. And I, I, I guess some of the things that uh, jump out to me there, uh, I guess a lot of the, like you said, Harry hindsight, um, some of the, the figures that have been thrown around is, um, you know, that the increase in uh, employment during that period. But there was also that I just want to double click on the consequence of, as you said, speculation. If they did go to 0% interest rates, I think it's pretty well established that in Australia, there's a concern amongst most people that inequality is a major issue and you tend to see wealth inequality. Um, typically when interest rates fall, um, you have, at least in my opinion, a likelihood that uh, asset owners or people that have money become wealthier artificially and people that don't um, don't necessarily benefit in the same way. And I think if you look at acro across Australia, we obviously are looking for some type of equality, at least in the rules and the frameworks we use. And um, my, my concern was that, yes, I think the RBA governor made mistakes in the way that they, he commented on certain things. For example... Uh, many people may remember that during COVID, they said that interest rates would stay low until 2024, and they didn't really correct that course of language uh, until it was almost too late to correct it. And I think that's probably the key mistake, Pete, in my opinion, of this period. Um, but I, I also think that during COVID, uh, which is when they made some changes to interest rate settings, was a period when it was unprecedented to what you mentioned. And I think I, I don't blame the RBA for saying what they said during that time. This is just my own personal view. Um, and I just think it was the mistake of not backpedaling from that soon enough. I, I don't know if that is just kind of conjecture, Pete, but that's how I kind of thought about this. Um, and I guess the other part of it is where hopefully you can shed some more light is kind of like, what has been talked about and what are, what are the recommendations saying and what does this actually mean in practice? Does it make a difference if we separate the RBA from interest rate decisions? Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah, there are a number of proposals uh, that came out of the reform. Now, one of the criticisms, which I think being objective, um, was about the calendar-based guidance. So you're right. So talking about we don't expect interest rates to move until mm. 2024 at the earliest and then financial markets moved. And uh, the commentary uh, or the statement of policy didn't really change very uh, quickly enough. And um, yes, yeah, so, so that was something that perhaps justifiably attracted some criticism and may need a look. I think a, a lot of this comes down to what you just touched on there. You know, people talking about things like inequality. And there's, the Reserve Bank puts out a lot of research on all kinds of different subjects. You know, what industries are doing well, mm. um, things like climate change, for example, and in my opinion anyway, and look, there's, there's a lot of different opinions out there. You know, the RBA's job is really to be an inflation targeting central bank. You know, should they really be targeting things like inequality, changes in the climate? Yeah, I mean, to the degree they impact inflation, yes. But um, that's really, these are issues for the government, not really uh, for the central bank. And I, I think this is one of the key recommendations is um, instead of uh, having this sort of conf somewhat confusing mandate where the Reserve Bank has to achieve the stability of the currency and then the economic prosperity. I mean, the welfare of the Australian people. What does that mean? You know, uh, yes, mm. full employment, but how do, you, how do you sort of measure the welfare of the Australian people? You know, which people, which cohorts? Uh, so one of the key recommendations is, is just bringing that down to a, a dual mandate. So a focus on full employment and the inflation target and the other stuff um, it sort of gets turned down a notch. So I think um, that, that is, um, I, I guess, what people are asking is what are the implications if these uh, proposed reforms are pushed through? I mean, firstly, uh, we'd get uh, monetary policy experts taking the decision instead of the existing board, which is comprised of people with 
all kinds of different experience. So uh, one of the proposals is we get experts in um, macroeconometrics and monetary policy. So effectively, the, the academic nerds uh, and the experts in monetary policy. In terms of what it means for interest rates, well, potentially we, we might have fewer meetings per annum, uh, which would bring us somewhat more in line with, with other, uh, other central banks in some parts of the world. Um, does that mean anything for interest rates? Probably not. You might get some more uh, sort of out-of-cycle moves in mortgage rates from the bank, uh, from the banks and lenders, but probably doesn't actually change the absolute level of interest rates much over the course of a year. Um, I suppose the, the, the key question really is, do we tolerate inflation staying above target all the way through to 2025, which is what is currently expected, or do, do interest rates mm. need to go up uh, more to bring that inflation figure down uh, sooner. So as things currently stand, well, we were very patient with inflation in the range of 1% to 2%. And logically, you would think with inflation already on the way back down, uh, we'll see the same on this side. So it shouldn't be an asymmetric target, as they say. But uh, lots of different opinions, as you mentioned. Pete, I've got a, maybe a simple question for you is, what would be the key difference then when the RBO's role if they can't set interest rates, how do they influence inflation? No, I think um, so. I think the, this uh, what we're really talking about here is um, who is actually setting uh, the mm. interest rate. So in, instead of uh, the existing board, we'd actually have monetary policy experts appointed to take the actual inflation um, interest rate decisions. So um, in terms of practical. Um, you know, the practical reality for us in the market and us as uh, borrowers, people with mortgages, uh, people with term deposits and investors, no real change. It's just a, a different structure to the existing setup in the institution. And there's, um, you know, these kind of reviews will always um, bring forward criticism saying, you know, in some examples, the governor or the board might not take on uh, conflicting views or take on board uh, criticisms or advice, you know, but th that's uh, to be expected. Uh, all mm. reviews will will uh, bring out criticisms and things that may potentially be done better. That's the that's the whole point of a review. Mm. Uh, but in terms of what it practically means, um, well, yes, I guess you know what is the focus, you know, it is and how quickly uh, does inflation need to be returned to to target? That's you know for for the mum and dad investor, mum and dad borrower. I think that's the one potential change. Now, on that point, on the day of recording, we just got the latest inflation figures mm. for the March quarter and also the monthly inflation figures for the month of March. And uh, the quarterly inflation figures are on the way back down. So they peaked uh, in late 2022. And the monthly inflation figures have fallen from 8.4% over the year to December to 6.3%. So they're coming down quite quickly, which suggests to me that the Reserve Bank will simply sit on its hands for the next few months. Because, of course, these are proposed reforms. They mm. haven't been pushed through yet. Um, so it's actually good news for borrowers. So it's been long overdue because it's been a difficult 12 months, to say the least, uh, with mortgage rates only going up. Uh, so some overdue relief, potentially, and probably some more interest rates on hold for a while. Mm. I think um, one of the things that have come out of the last few years, just from a personal finance or investing perspective, is... Um, that at, at the end of the day, people who buy property or people who invest, um, when, you, when you use debt to do that, it's actually the debt is in your name. It's not in the name of the mortgage broker. It's not in the name of your financial advisor. And it's not in the name of the RBA governor. And so what that means, practically speaking, is that it's imperative that you understand the dynamics of interest rates and how that relates to your borrowing. If you speak to someone and um, they say that you can borrow X amount. Like I think the thing that we see a lot, Pete, is people who go and go onto a bank's website and go to the borrowing power calculator and it shows you the maximum that you can borrow and people assume that that's what I should be borrowing. Um, not necessarily the case. Sometimes you don't need, in fact, I'd say most of the time, you shouldn't be borrowing the maximum amount if it's not <laughs> appropriate for you. So it's really important that when you think about your situation and your strategy and how you plan to build an investment portfolio inside or outside of property that you're really mindful of what necessarily could go wrong in terms of asymmetry, you know, what could go wrong to the downside or the upside. And that would probably be my takeaway. 
Well, this was one of the key things that came out of the Banking Royal Commission. There were a couple of high-profile cases, um, particularly there was one in Western Australia where somebody had uh, taken on multiple mortgages to buy houses in Perth, which um, subsequently had fallen in uh, uh, value. And then she sort of came back and said, well, this is this, what, it, what I was recommended to do, as though the individual has no uh, agency in the process. And uh, I think uh, certainly over the past 15 years or so, we've seen that sort of balance towards a nanny state uh, tilted massively in favour of more rules, more regulations, yeah. more limits on what people can and can't do. Now, you know, pre-2007, um, you could, within reason, you could, <laughs> you know, you could do, if you could fog up a mirror, you could get a mortgage. So uh, it's definitely sort of changed. And now you require a deposit. There'll be um, quite strict limits on how much debt you can carry. I think you, you touched on the key point there. Um, look, things can change in the market. And arguably, um, if you're going to invest in a property, I mean, it's these are 25 or 30 year mortgages. You should expect over 25 mm. to 30 years, you should expect to see maybe two or three recessions. There should be periods where interest rates are higher, periods where they're lower. There'll be uh, times when prices are falling, prices are going up. You should expect that if you're going to take out uh, debt over a long period of time and as we've often talked about property often works better as a long-term mm. investment so that's one thing you need to factor in and yes the debt does get inflated away over time but as you said the the dollar figure of debt is fixed you know unless you pay it down and ultimately it's your responsibility and um, I think one of the other analogies um, that Nassim Taleb uh, talked about is um, a thousand and one days in the life of a Thanksgiving turkey, it seems like things are just progressing nicely and then suddenly, bang, there's a big change. And I think that's, that's always worth remembering because there's a lot of commentary and you see this all the time with things like inflation. Oh, you know, it's, it's changed from, you know, 1.3 to 1.35, you know, really sort of a granular analysis. But then something big happens like a pandemic and then you get a big change. So um, you need mm. to expect things to change if you're going to own an asset and have mortgage debt for very long periods of time. Mm. Well, they call it the uh, the black swan. It's almost like um, until they came to Australia and then they discovered that they were, in fact, black swans. Um, but they do happen and they are out there. So, Yeah, um, well, it's a good analogy <laughs> as a Brit because, uh, you know, that, that phrase actually you know, came out of London originally and I'd never seen a black swan in my life till I came to <laughs> Australia and then now I go up to Gympie and they're, they're bloody everywhere. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I think I've lost my train of thought. Expect the unexpected, I guess. That's yes, the key point. absolutely. And uh, Nassim Taleb has a fantastic book about being anti-fragile, which coincidentally is the way I tend to invest my money in things that can't break. But Pete, the top, the second topic that we wanted to talk to today, speaking of not breaking, is uh, insolvencies for con construction companies, a lot of property developers. It's hitting the news that businesses um, that we, the household names that we kind of know and trust in the, the construction space, going out of business, filing for insolvency or bankruptcy. I guess, what does this mean? What, are the, what is the news telling us? Can you fill us in? So there was a piece this week in Urban Developer um, where Wayne Clark uh, from uh, the Credit Bureau um, said that half of construction companies or development companies are borderline insolvent. Now, you know, take that as you will. It's a difficult thing to measure. Um, mm. But we're clearly seeing this in the number of construction firms and building firms that are going bust. Um, so the first question is why? Um, look, it's not, it's not a high margin or very profitable industry. There's lots of competition. And a lot of um, what well, we saw, a big boom in building uh, through the pandemic because of the home builder stimulus that the coalition government put in place. But a lot of those um, development projects were um, assessed on fixed price contracts. And then, of course, the price of materials went through the roof um, as the demand for mm -hmm. building materials uh, skyrocketed. The cost of trades went up because we, well, we had closed international borders. We didn't have the skilled migrants coming in. And they just, well, there weren't enough people to do the work uh, that was undertaken. So costs have uh, shot up. And um, insolvencies now for construction across the sector are higher than at any time over the past decade, and they're probably around the highest in two decades. And at the same time, we've got new home sales now with interest rates having gone up. Well, new home sales are at decade lows. Um, so not only are we seeing construction firms 
uh, going to the wall, which is um, at the moment it's shrinking the capacity of the home building industry to deliver the new housing that we need as immigration picks up. But we're also seeing very few people willing to actually commit to buying a new home or a new apartment because they're just worried about what might or might not happen to development firms. And actually a lot of the building firms, uh, the HIA reported, are seeing cancellation rates now mm. across the sector, about 30%. So when they're reporting their monthly sales, some of them are actually in negative figures uh, because there's so many people cancelling. So, yeah, there's a lot happening and it's quite uh, concerning, just not just for the economy, but for people who are trying to build or buy a new house. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Before this, uh, before we hit record, Pete, I was looking at some, uh, some data on some of the biggest property developers in the country. So I went and pulled some data on companies like Mervac and Lendlease and uh, Pete and all these types of businesses. And uh, one of the, the numbers that I always study when I'm looking at businesses is um, basically what, a metric that we call return on capital, which you mentioned as margins before. And for those of you that aren't finance geeks like Pete and I, basically what this means is um, that the amount of money that a company can reinvest back into its business and earn a return. And uh, for these businesses, it hovers between, well, sometimes negative, but it hovers no higher than 6%. So imagine if you made an investment and you didn't get more than 6% of your your upside. That's your upside. That's what it's limited at. And that just speaks to Pete's point around the um, the competitiveness of the industry. But it also speaks to another point, Pete, which is the huge amount of what we call leverage in the system. So just like an individual can take on a loan, so can a property developer. And a property developer often relies on loans um, that are typically benchmarked at, inf- at inflation or CPI as well. And so they use those loans to go and buy the property, like the land that you see, and then develop that land and sell the houses to you. And so not only do we have new home sales falling because of reduced borrowing capacity and all those types of things, we also have increasing costs of like raw materials increasing labor costs um, but ultimately you know we've got increasing funding costs for property developers as well so it's a really hard spot they find themselves in but one of the things that's noteworthy in this is that even during say just during like an average time for a building company they don't make a huge profit so for every dollar that they put into their business not much of that comes back as new profit and so it doesn't take much to tweak those little levers and the thing kind of loses its wheels a bit. And that's what we're seeing, um, unfortunately, is what we're seeing. And it's it's a pretty scary thought, Pete, I've got to admit, for people that may be thinking about putting down a deposit on a home or something like this. I know Chris spoke on the, the podcast last week or the week before about how, um, you know, that buying in those house and land packages can actually be quite risky because it's not necessarily um, what we would deem as a high quality investment in, you know, those inner rings or those types of places. Um, and so people just really need to be extra careful right now because that's it's, it's, it's quite a precarious position. Some of these builders find themselves in. I don't know, Pete, like does this taking a step back and just thinking bigger picture, what does this mean uh, for property prices per se, does this because fewer houses are getting built? Does that mean we could expect prices to go up in time? Like I, I'm trying to think about this on the way in. Medium term, yes, we're we're heading for a, a, a chronic housing shortage, but not everywhere. Right. I think um, the home builder stimulus was unusual, um, not like the construction boom a decade ago, which was all centered around um, high rise apartments, which you'd have seen all around mm. uh, Melbourne CBD and Docklands and. Uh, some of those inner city hubs. So it was the same in Brisbane, a, a lot of inner city areas and big tower blocks. Home builder stimulus was really much more broad based and it was a lot of detached housing, but mm. all around the country, regional markets, um, house and land packages. Um, so look, you probably don't have shortages in a lot of those areas, but it's really uh, with immigration picking up, the shortages are in sort of middle ring uh, suburbia, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, people coming back to the cities again. Um, I, I think you're right. I mean, the industry has always had um, an element of risk and we don't want to make enemies, um, you know, <laughs> but uh, this is not really opinion-based. This is just statistical. The, the risks of losing money on buying new property or off the plan is much higher. The CoreLogic figures show this every every year that um, statistically more people lose money buying brand new. Um, I think largely because when they come to sell, um, they're like selling a second-hand car. It's no longer a shiny new product. 
and the second user doesn't always want to pay as much. Um, there is also a thing in the industry does have a reputation for uh, phoenixing, which if you're not familiar, mm -hmm. essentially, you know, a building firm may collapse and the company is closed, but eventually the directors and the trades workers and so on, they resurface, but under a new business. Um, now, there are certain rules and regulations about what can and can't be done, but nonetheless, it does create a concern for people buying new property. I think there's a broader issue for the economy. Uh, one of the things we've always known about residential housing construction is it has a very strong multiplier across the rest of the mm. economy. Every dollar that's spent on building a new home, it effectively results in $3 being spent across the economy. But the problem is when that goes into reverse gear, we kind of get the, the downside. So the knock-on impacts to things like small business and spending in the economy. So yeah, but look, over the medium term, I think there's going to be an undersupply, a shortage of housing, but not everywhere all around the country. Just there's going to be focused, I think, on the suburbia in the in the big cities where people are migrating to from overseas. And also, I think a lot of workers are now being called back into the office at least two or three days a week. Um, but yeah, the Australian ran a news article this week. And when you just look at the uh, the the insolvencies in the sector, even since um, you know since March, you got PBS, uh, Sunfox, Porter Davis, Wedgwood Constructions, Marcorp, and then you just roll it back uh, over the months, and there's just no end of businesses mm. going under. So um, this hasn't finished by a long shot. So um, definitely a watch this space and um, some significant implications, and obviously a caveat emptor if you're looking at buying a new property. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember being at a a lunch a couple of weeks ago and hearing that, um, you know, uh, there was a story of a few people around the table talking about, you know, buying a, a home and a house land package. And the, the conversation turned to how dare the property developers um, take people's money for deposits, um, you know, the week before they were declared bankruptcy. But I think that kind of, they don't necessarily know that they're going bankrupt, but one thing they have to do is keep selling mm. um, in order to keep developing because that's their business model. So uh, you've got to feel for a lot of the, the folks that work for the property developers as well and the, the, the buyers that get involved in these. It's just, as Pete said, it's just keep your wits about you. And to be honest, it, if you take that medium-term horizon, maybe there are opportunities for astute investors. And that's the way I think about it, Pete, uh, is kind of like, well, let's, let's, let's look at the glass half full here for some people with that longer-term perspective. Um, but I'm sure this will be something that Chris and yourself or the rest of us cover multiple times on the show over the next year because, like you said, I think it's done, yeah. Personal uh, case in point, actually, I, I've only ever bought myself uh, hmm. one property off the plan. I, it's not something I normally do. I sometimes have clients from overseas who can only buy new, but that's a slightly different situation. Mm. But in, in 2009, I bought a property that had been built by one of the developers in Sydney, but uh, the valuers just were so twitchy with all the uh, <laughs> stuff going on in the US that the prices came right down. And um, I was able to buy, uh, gosh, it's hard to remember the numbers, 360,000 in um in Erskineville in Sydney a couple of oh, yeah. days out um but yeah normally I wouldn't buy off the plan because you know who knows what the finished product's going to look like uh it might not look what it uh, appears to be in the brochure but um at the time you could negotiate hard on the new builds because the, the valuers just weren't uh, mm. seeing the value stack up so it's not to say don't do it but you just got to be very careful about what you do um and particularly at a period like right now where you've got heightened risk around new builds can I just ask one follow-up to that, Pete, because I'm very curious. When you made that decision, did you? how did you get comfortable with the developer? Uh, well, they've been around uh, for a long period of time. It's actually one of Australia's listed developers, and they're still around today. So oh. you're right, um, it's, uh, well, we're on the theme of Nassim Taleb, there's an old uh, concept he talks about called the Lindy effect. And you know, the longer something's been around the longer it's likely to stick around. You know, like Guinness, for example, has been brewed <laughs> since the 1700s or, you know, Disney has been making movies for decades. Those are the kind of things. But, um, I mean, yeah, look, as a general rule, if the developer's been around for six months or two years, it's going to be a high-risk prospect than something with a very established brand, um, experience of managing capital through multiple cycles, um, you know, brand mm. and reputation and things like that. So uh, in that instance, it was, um, yeah, I mean, you, you never really know with this stuff, but it was a developer 
that had been listed in Australia for many, many years and still still listed today. So, um, hmm. and it's been it's worked out well as a, an investment. Um, you know, close to Newtown, easy to rent out, and um, yeah, right. it didn't feel comfortable at the time. By the way, buying in two thousand and nine, but that's uh, what being hmm. a contrarian is always about. Absolutely, yeah. What's what's the saying? What's what's really comfortable is profitable or something like that i thought you were going to throw in a warren buffett quote and i was going to make you uh, have, to, <laughs> have a drink <laughs> yeah that's right buy, buy your straw hats in winter or whatever the, yeah. the phrase is. one of those but uh, yeah. yeah um but that's really interesting Pete, because um for those of you that don't pay that, that, uh, as close attention to what's going on in the stock market you can actually go and find the list of companies that are on the stock exchange and the beauty of it is, is that you can look at their financials. So you can, because they have to publish mm. them, right? So you can see how much profit they have, what their cash in the bank is like, how much debt they have. And so you could probably get a lot more comfortable with that company um, versus someone that maybe you just kind of, it's not really transparent. You don't know exactly what's going on beneath the surface. All right, Pete. Well, one final thing is kind of the, I guess, the whole market of mortgage prisoners, what's going on with borrowing capacity and people that are kind of stuck. So the idea is I understand it, Pete, of a, of a mortgage prisoner as someone who is in a home, owns their home or a property, and they have a mortgage against that property, but they can't afford to refinance enough uh, to say like get a fixed rate or to negotiate a lower rate. Alternatively, they probably may even be in negative equity where they probably don't want to sell because they'd have to make up the difference. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yes, it is. Now, I guess uh, before cracking on with this point, I just want to uh, uh, deliver a hat tip to Melissa Brown, good friend of oh, the yeah. show, who's also been on um, uh, the Australian Investors podcast from memory. And uh, mm -hmm. I saw it, she said on her socials that she hates the phrase mortgage prisoners because um, <laughs> and prison kind of suggests you can't do anything about it. And uh, you're almost sort of... Um, diminishing the term of you know the, the use of the term mortgage prisoners of course when we were writing the show notes the first thing we wrote was mortgage prisoners so uh, due apologies uh, melissa we'll we'll try and think of a better term uh, people trapped in unfavorable uh, mortgage situation uh, uh, so yes i guess um, yeah so yes you're right so there's good and bad news i suppose the good news is inflation has peaked uh, mm. the bad news is though um that um, a lot of people who borrowed on fixed rate mortgages over the past uh, two years in particular borrowed at very low mortgage rates, around 2%. And when those fixed rate mortgages reset, they're going back onto variable rate mortgages of maybe somewhere between five and six, uh, which may not be so bad for some borrowers who've built up a buffer. And this is something that's been talked about ad nauseum for the past year. Um, but the, the mortgage prisoner thing is interesting. So... Um, Lending standards have been tightened up over the past year in particular. Interest rates have gone up, which has reduced borrowing capacity. And so some people are finding that they are kind of stuck uh, with unfavorable uh, mortgage terms. So, for example, if you've got a mortgage rate of 6% and you want to shop around and try and get somebody to lend you at 5 um, it's not possible for everybody because their borrowing capacity isn't as high as it was when they took out the loan. Mm. Um, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely it does. And uh, the other thing that, that has impacted this, so um, the Prudential regulator introduced a lending assessment buffer um, over a year ago now um, of three percentage points. So in plain English, if you're borrowing at 5% today, the bank has to run a stress test to ensure that you can comfortably afford the repayments if the mortgage rates went to, say, 8%. Percent, uh, which it's actually made sense when it was brought in because, um, as you touched on right back at the beginning, interest rates were near zero, and at some point they were clearly going to go back up. I think the thing is, though, now if you look at what financial markets are pricing, no further interest rate hikes. Australia's three-year bond yield is below three percent, so actually markets are expecting interest rates to fall over the next few years. So it doesn't really make sense to have this. Uh, buffer in place anymore and it is actually trapping some people uh, with mortgage terms that they don't really want so we can take a little little bit of a look about the, the steps or some of the ideas for mortgage prisoners and what they can do mm. yeah absolutely and i think you explained that really concisely there pete um and yeah i mean my thoughts instantly turn to well call your call your broker and um speak to them so 
Turns out my mortgage broker is Chris. Um, so call Chris. Um, put him in the deep end. He's, he's probably on the phone the as we speak. His phone <laughs> yeah. usually rings all the way through the podcast. So uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, uh, he's a man in demand at the moment, probably with people refinancing mortgages. So, he uh, is indeed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, whoever your broker is, um, give him a call because um, – or, or just get a broker. Um, and see what they have to say, and they may be able to give you an assessment, even just over the phone, to give you a sense of what's what's happening, what's likely, whether you should try and, you know, refinance or just not attempt it at all and avoid that mark against um, your application. Um, the other thing is, I, I I still like coming off a few decades of uh, interest rates falling, Pete. I think it's fair to say that there may be some folks that maybe have got by without taking a good hard look at their their, their budget uh, anytime soon. So I did mine. My partner and I, we did ours at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, last few years have been pretty pretty good. And then your mortgage goes up, you know, 1500 bucks a month. And you're thinking, well, okay, maybe I should actually take a good hard look at this budget and see what I can do. So we did that. Um, and some of the things that people can do, I think one of the comments that that, um, that you had during the week was that there was about 20, I think it's about, did you say it's about 20% of households that may find themselves in this situation? Oh, no, loans. So owner-occupier loans is about 20% of those are unable to finance. There's a lot of people. And typically, as you know, and you noted there, Pete, that what tends to happen is people tend to use their emergency funds, you know, those, those, those blocks of money that should be for financial emergencies, for medical, for going to the dentist and getting your wisdom teeth pulled out if you don't have enough cover for all of it, those types of things. And there are some simple steps that people can follow, things like, you know, selling or um, getting rid of things that might be lying around the house that just still have a lot of value. Uh, it sounds trivial, but it can actually really help. And then um, one final thing that um, we always say on our other shows, which doesn't apply to everyone, so it's this is not for everyone, um, is just speaking to someone. So speaking to your partner, um, communication is one of the keys to relieving financial stress, actually. Um, most uh, households, I'd say, don't talk openly about money and that it, that leads to a culture of financial insecurity. Um, but speaking to someone that you trust or even getting on the phone to a financial counsellor because they can actually go into bat for you against the bank and they can negotiate for you on your behalf and it's free. Um, and a lot of people don't know that. So I think the National Debt Helpline is going to be ringing hot, but... Definitely those, if you find yourself in that unfortunate situation, please know that you have those services available. I think there are a few other things people can do, Pete, but um, are there any you'd like to add? I think 80% of it, as you said, is summed up by the word communication. So firstly, get on the phone to your mortgage broker Mm. or find a mortgage broker if you don't have one. I think um, an important point is speak to the bank, speak to the lender. Mm. They'll have a hardship line. You'll find that banks are much more amenable these days to the idea of a mortgage holiday or in some cases letting people go on to interest only terms for a while there's very little appetite to send people to the wall over problem Absolutely. loans these days um, but as you mentioned you could also speak to a financial counselor communicate with your partner or family or even a friend i think the worst thing you can do is take the head in sand approach um, mm. because there are lots of things you can do uh, before uh, falling into a, arrears on a mortgage and then that's where the problems can begin and there's Obviously, as you mentioned, there's lots of things you can do in terms of reviewing your budget and getting rid of excesses. But communication is key, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And there's one thing that we've, it's probably not unique, but at least it's rare that's happening during this um, bout of uncertainty with a lot of property owners is um, full employment or, you know, very low unemployment numbers, which basically means that one of the other things you may be able to do is to get a pay rise or to get a second job or do something like this temporarily. Um, we often say that, you know, side hustles and those, those kind of things that people tend to do for a bit of enjoyment at first, a kind of part leisure, part, you know, money. Um, those types of things should only probably be treated as short term uh, because they can lead to burnout and those types of things. But there are heaps of opportunities around at the moment um, for many different fields. And I think if you maybe look around and you can find those types of opportunities, there may be significant uh, upside because a lot of wages haven't gone up, Pete. So um, people may be able to make that switch now to the other position that you've been wanting to do for quite some time. It's one of the reasons why arrears have actually stayed so low. I mean, uh, they're only just starting to rise now, 30-day mortgage arrears. But 
main reasons we've had full employment. Um, so if people want to work extra hours, they've been able to. Um, and also we've had rising rent. So uh, it's not like um, seven or eight years ago where the, a lot of landlords were struggling with properties they couldn't rent out. Um, so um, rents have generally increased a bit. Wages have gone up for most um, for, uh, for most workers, although not all. But the main thing is we've got full employment at the moment, as you mentioned. So that tends to be a good thing for mortgage arrears. They'll obviously rise from here, though, uh, because mm. they've been at the 20-year low. So um, I think, uh, as you said, um, you've got to try and push through the next period because at some point we'll start to see uh, mortgage rates coming back down. In fact, the past couple of weeks, we've seen fixed rate mortgages have been falling across the board, actually. So, mm. um, yes, it does suggest that at some point uh, we'll start to see mortgage rates coming down. But you, you can see in all the figures and all the data that the share of risky lending, uh, in other words, um, highly leveraged borrowers or people with low deposits, that's dropped off a cliff. So um, lending is much tighter than it was. Um, so there's just a period... Uh, you need to get through. But um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, during COVID, banks were very happy to open up mortgage holidays uh, for people who needed them. Mm. Um, so the worst case scenario, that, that might be open to you as well. Mm. Yeah, I always say over on our Australian business podcast, Pete, I always say for most business owners, it's a, you know, it's just get through the next 12 months, get through the next 24 months. Uh, and because most business owners' life is just frantic, as you know. So, um, it's, it's almost a case of that for, uh, for some homeowners as well. Is one of the things that I like to do when I hear about interest rates, I say to Pete, well, what does the forward yield curve say? And as Pete alluded to, it looks like it's lower than it is today. And what that basically means is that the expectation amongst investors, which could be wrong, by the way, which could be wrong, suggests that interest rates should actually fall uh, in time. And so that's good news. Um, that's good news for, for homeowners and for investors um, and those looking to position themselves now. I think the key point, Owen, is get on the phone to a mortgage broker. Get, a, get on the phone to an expert in the industry mm. so you know what all of your options are. You know, the, the everyday person has got no time or inclination mm. to be keeping tabs on what all the different lenders are doing, what all the available products are. Um, most mortgage brokers don't charge you directly. They usually take their commissions from lenders. So it doesn't even necessarily cost you anything um, uh, to get some expert advice in this space. And the worst thing you can do is just take a head in sand approach and do nothing. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Well, we've covered um, three important topics this, this week, mate. I'm, I'm, I know I'm out of my depth. That's normally Chris and, and you, Pete, but I think you did a good job of carrying me this week. Oh, you're way too kind. Uh, yes, I, uh, I, know, I really enjoyed it. It's always great to, to catch up and, um, yeah, different perspectives is good. Um, and yeah, as you said, there's, there's a bit going on. So Reserve Bank reform um, may mm -hmm. not mean actually that much for us as individuals and borrowers, uh, but certainly an interesting time ahead. Inflation is starting to slow down, though. That's the key thing. And uh, the, a big relief, actually, today mm -hmm. when we saw the inflation figures weren't as high as last quarter. Um, construction sector, there's going to be problems over the coming six to 12 months. So um, as we mentioned, just be very careful around that if you're buying a new property or off-the-plan property. Um, there's some heightened risks at the moment of insolvency um, because you mm. do tend to get sometimes this uh, sort of knock-on effect if a developer goes under, it sort of uh, flows through to subcontractors and other people in the industry, a bit of a domino thing uh, going on. And thirdly, uh, lending trends. So I guess the good news is um, over the next two or three years, we might expect to see mortgage rates easing a bit. But in the short term, there's still some pain for people seeing their fixed rate mortgages reset to much higher levels. So all of those things we talked about for mortgage prisoners or people stuck in a difficult situation, <laughs> apologies, Melissa, uh, but I am listening to your uh, daily Instagram, uh, then yes, do get on the phone to a broker, an expert advisor or somebody who can help out. And I think the key point, Owen, as you said, is really to communicate. Mm, yeah, I see it all the time. You know, the two things about money is one, it's important, and two, we don't like to talk about it. Um, so those two things don't really gel, uh, and they don't really lead to good outcomes. So talking about it uh, is really important, and uh, because it is important to our lives. Uh, but Pete, this is heaps of fun, mate. This is heaps of fun. Um, if if people do want to send us uh, their questions, they can head to the link in the podcast player, which just says "Ask a Question," and just select the Australian Property Podcast. Either Chris, Pete, Amy or myself would love to field that question either in a Q&A or here on the Two Cents every Sunday morning. And if people want to get in contact with Pete, 
the easiest way to do that is just to head to the link in the show notes and he's available on Twitter. He's also is at petewargent.blogspot. Is that correct? Yeah, petewargent.blogspot or as you said, uh, if you track me down on Twitter at petewargent, I'll be live tweeting my uh, wisdom tooth extraction <laughs> over the coming weeks. So, uh, And there's a little bit of finance thrown in as well occasionally. <laughs> I do. I must admit, mate, the teeth look nice and white today. So the, the, <laughs> the dentist has done well and you've done really well to get through this uh, recording. So I really appreciate it, mate, backing up the dentist with a podcast. <laughs> um, but always great to chat. Commitment mate. to the cause. Uh, hmm. So, yeah, no, it's always good fun. And, uh, yeah, do send us your questions because what we're trying to do here is always address the things you want us to talk about. So send us all your property questions. Great. Well, on that, Pete, thanks for joining me, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Owen. See you next week. Thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.